you guys have your Bibles, why don't you guys meet me in John chapter 4. Um, if you don't have a Bible, why don't you raise your hand? Please keep your hand raised high so one of the guys can get you a Bible. Um, if you don't own a Bible, as always, this is our gift to you. Keep this Bible, write on this Bible, mark it up, it's yours. Um, if you do own one but you forgot one, go ahead and raise your hand as well, and um, we'll be able to get you um, a copy, and you can just place it on the shelf on your way out. And, we're going to start in John chapter 4. That's the Gospel of John chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. As you turn there, let me kind of just recap and kind of give you a preview of where we've been and where we're going. On Easter, we started a series called Who Is This? And the whole idea behind it was encountering Jesus. At Redemption Church, at every single congregation, as I've said before and I say every week, we believe that, that all of life is all for Jesus, meaning everything we do from home uh, to work to school to recreation, it matters to Jesus. We, we agree with um, the theologian um, Abraham Kuyper, who says that there's not one square inch of this universe of which Christ, who alone is sovereign, does not look at and cry out, that's mine meaning he is Lord over all things. And that in Christ and through Christ, God is redeeming all things. And so the role of the church in making disciples in response to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is to live for Jesus. And if we're going to live for Jesus, we need to encounter him again and again and again. Some of us, it's something we've been doing for a lifetime. Some of us, it may be the first time that we encounter Jesus. So we thought, let's spend five weeks talking about Jesus. Because when we read through the Gospels, when people encounter Jesus, we often see him do a miracle. We often also see him teaching, and someone will ask the question, who is this? And so on week one and the resurrection, we talked about who is this who raised, who's raised from the dead. And so that's what we talked about on Easter. Um, last week, Justin taught a different message off the series, which is beautiful and great. Um, now we're back here in the series, and we'll take four more weeks, including today, in this series. And, then, and the topic today is who is this who exposes sin or who exposes darkness? Um, the purpose of the study guide, which many of you have, and if you don't have, you can pick it up um, at the Connect Desk, or you can go online and download it. The study guide is to take what we talked about today and in your redemption community, and if you're not in one, God's not saying you need to be in one, but maybe, um, you're going to go through and unpack more um, of the nature of sin. And so that's what we pick up today um, in John chapter 4. Before we uh, look at this text, would you guys join in with prayer as we pray to the Holy Spirit to illuminate the Word of God? Father, we thank you for this day. Uh, we thank you, Lord, that we can gather today uh, as men and women and as children people who know your word, people who don't know your word. Lord, I'm thankful for uh, this Sunday, God, that, that many will gather to hear about Jesus. And God, we pray particularly in this moment at this service, Lord, that your spirit would impress upon us the truth of Jesus. That as we look at the narrative of this story, that we would see who is Jesus and what Jesus does in our life as we look at this woman, this woman at the well. God, this is a very familiar story to many of us. And I pray that we would not miss what you were teaching us. And Lord, so I pray that you would take this time, you would take our hearts, you would take our mind, our intellect, our desires, um, and Lord, you would raise our affection towards your son, Jesus. Um, God, we, we ask that we would be humbled before your word and before your presence and before one another. In Jesus' name, amen. A couple of weeks ago, my wife and I went to the movie theater and watched what I believe, my opinion, um, one of the better movies that I've seen in a while. And it caught me as a shock. The name of the movie was The Hunger Games. I'm sure. <laughs> yes! 
didn't read the book, um, hadn't read the books. The only reason why we even went to the movies because everyone was talking about how good this movie was. And I showed up to the theaters, and so if, if you've never seen, read the book and you don't know what the movie is about, if you just walk into the theater, you can get a totally different understanding of what the movie's about than what its intention would be. Meaning, we just showed up to the Arizona Mills to watch a movie, and yeah, we go to the Arizona Mills. <sighs> um, we keep it real. Uh, but we're watching The Hunger Games, so it's like hipster and hood together, right? So they're, they're, we, we, my, wife and I, my wife and I had not read the book, and, and, and at first glance, it's like, this movie's sick. It's about kids killing kids. And so I did some more research after watching the movie and gave me a better, a better understanding of the movie, movie is that I researched the author and Googled why did she write this book, why did she write this book that became this movie that everyone's watching, and I was blown away. One, the woman who wrote this book is a mom of two kids, and she said that she was watching television one day, and she was watching a television show where young people were competing on a reality show to become a millionaire. And then she flipped the channel, and then and there was young people at war in Iraq. And then she flipped the channel, and there's more young people doing different things. And she says, it just came to her how this culture, through media and other me mediums, is, is we are becoming more and more desensitized to violence that we become more and more desensitized to the, to the ills and evils of our world. And so she writes this trilogy, um, of which Hunger Games is a part of, to communicate this, this futuristic dystopia of where the world is headed and how we become so numb to these things. And when I read that, I thought, now the movie makes sense. Now, now it makes sense, and it's brilliant. Because I don't know where she's at theologically, I don't know where she's at in her faith, but she communicates something that's true about this world, and that is we are in a broken world. And not only do we become numb to, to war and to violence, not only do we become numb to, to, to things that harm and to evil and justice and suffering, but personally, on an individual level, we become numb to sin. Now, it's easy to say that in our culture, and, and it's easy to say that even to people who do not believe in God, but to many of us in this room who would profess faith in Jesus Christ, we become numb to the very thing that God hates. We become numb to the very thing that we would say that we hate, and that's sin. And, and, and the, the movie in itself just, just paints a picture where there's no way out. Uh, the, the main character is just this woman named Katniss, and, and she's got two options, kill or be killed. It screams for a savior. And we talk about reality. We talk about a world that is depraved, a world that is broken. Um, what we have is God himself entering into this broken world and offering for us not just the way out, but the way that life should be. And so as we look at the story today uh, of Jesus and this woman at the well, I want you to think of it as encountering Jesus. Not that the story is about the woman. The story is about Jesus doing for us what all of us need, and he exposes darkness. He exposes sin in this particular woman. And that's where we're going to begin at. I'm, I'm not going to have any points today. We're just going to walk through the narrative as we see Jesus interacting and encountering this woman, um, pointing out to her her sin, pointing out ultimately to us how we become numb to sin, and we would see the character of God and be led to worship. That is my prayer for us this morning. So John chapter 4, uh, verses 1 through 6. It says, now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making more disciples, and more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. 
and he had to pass through Samaria. And he came to the town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. Before we go any further, I have to give some context. I have to give some historical and geographical context in order for us to understand this text. Um, it says that Jesus, just previous to this, was, was talking to some Pharisees, talking to some very um, super pious religious people. He got sick of talking about how to do ministry with them. It says he's leaving now from Galilee to go to Judea. So geographically, you have Galilee in the south and Judea in the north. Um, and in between, you have this place called Samaria. Now, there was tension between ethnic Jewish people and Samaritans, and this tension went on for centuries and centuries, dating back to 722 BC, so this is about 700 years before the birth of Christ. Um, there was two exiles of God's people. There were the exiles of people into Babylon, and there was the exile to the people of Assyria, where the Assyrians came and captured and pillaged um, part and sections of God's people, ethnic Jews. During this time, there were interminglings and interracial couples, and they created a totally different race called Samaritans. And Samaritans were half Jewish and half Gentile. Now, the tension that came from there was one that was racial tension, but also religious. The Samaritans came up with their own way to read the Bible. The Samaritans came up with their own way to worship. The ethnic Jews had their way of worship, which God had given them. And so there was strife there for hundreds and hundreds of years. And so now, in the, in, the, in the time that we have here in Jesus's life, what would happen is if you were traveling from Judea, which was primarily um, Jewish people, and to Galilee, primary ethnic Jewish people, what people would do instead of walking straight through, which would be a three days walk, they would walk around, which would be six days. Because they, wouldn't, they did not want to be defiled. They didn't want to be unclean. They didn't want to, to be with or be around Samaritans. And so that's the tension. Um, what most commentaries would try to say is this is like the tension of being in, in, in America in 1930s and 1940s where there was tension between African Americans and Caucasians. And even then, I, I don't think that's enough because we have years and years and years of hatred towards one another. And so that's where Jesus is. Well, Jesus is with his disciples. He sends his disciples off to go get some food. He finds himself in Samaria. He goes straight through it, and he sits at the well, and it says about the sixth hour, which is noon. And so the Middle East, much like Arizona, is a desert. Um, so noontime, it's hot. Jesus is fully God, but he's also fully man. He's tired. He's sitting next to this well uh, that we read about in, in Genesis was Jacob's well that, that he dug about 100 and 200 feet that people drank from, his family drank from, and so forth. But this well was a pitcher where people would come um, and get water and take it back to their villages. And so that's where we find Jesus, tired here, sitting at the well, um, in the place that he, being an ethnic Jew, should not be. And then it lets us know something in verse 7. Introduce our second person in the story, and it's the woman. Um, it says, the woman from Samaria came to draw water. I think it's interesting. One, the story never tells the woman's name. It doesn't give us the woman's full background. It doesn't let us know exactly how she grew up. It doesn't let us know if she has kids or not. Um, we find out a lot about this woman later, but we can even begin to find indications about what type of woman this is by knowing that at noon, the woman came to the well. Here's why. Women didn't come to the well at noon. Just like us who live in Arizona, it's hot. We don't do things outside when it's hot. Um, we don't do things at the middle of noon. We don't go for jogs. We don't do construction work. We try not to do work at noon in the middle of the summertime. Um, we go early in the morning. 
And what the well meant, the well was more than just getting water. The well was a social hangout. So the women of Samaria would go to the well together, they'd hang out together, they'd talk about what was cool, what was hot. Hey, did you see the Hunger Games? No, I didn't see it. I'm like, kids, kidding, kids. Um, they talked about what was ha- happening in their life. It would be like a coffee place for us. Um, there are certain places I know that if I go to in Tempe, I will run into people from our church. Um, I guarantee you, if I go to Cartel, I will run into people from our church. Um, if I go to Starbucks here on Southern and McClintock, I will run into people. If I go to Steve's, I will run into people from Redemption. There are coffee places I know if I go to, I won't run into them. I'm not going to tell you the name of those coffee places. <laughs> this, this is the well where people were. Um, women would go in the morning, and yet this woman chooses not to go in the morning time. And there's a reason why. Because she's not welcome there. This woman is socially and culturally rejected. As we're going to learn more about this woman, this nameless woman, this woman is known as being a promiscuous woman. This woman is known as the woman that you keep your husbands away from because she's had several husbands. Um, This is the woman who, who comes with shame, and she comes alone not at all expecting to see anybody else. That, that's, that's the type of woman this is. She goes at noon, even though it's hot, she goes well outside of where she lives, so she doesn't have to interact with people because when she, this type of woman in this culture, when she interacts with people, she's shamed, she's scorned, she's ridiculed, and so she goes by herself, and she does not expect to find anyone, and yet when she gets there, it's Jesus. Verse 7 again says, The woman from Samaria came to draw water, from Je- and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food, um, which I'm not really sure why that's there, (laughs) because that doesn't come back up. The disciples are just gone. They're going to go get a sandwich, something, right? So Jesus is there. The woman is there. And again, culturally, this does not make sense. I've already talked about the religious tension, the cultural tension, and the racial tension between Jews and Samaritans. But even more than that was the tension between men and women. This is not right. And one of the reasons why I chose this text and when I teach every time in this series, I'm going to try to pull out a story about a female. I think lots of times we talk stories about Jesus in encounter with males, and I think we need to see how Jesus interacts with females. Um, and so this woman and Jesus there presents all types of cultural tension because men were not supposed to talk to women. That was not allowed, especially Jewish. A Jewish man and a Jewish woman didn't even talk. Talk. And in this culture, women, again, not right, women were treated as subhuman. Some of the strict people, the most studied people, the Pharisees would even, um, they wouldn't, because they didn't want to be people who, seen, who, saw, who were seen as people who lusted or who ever lusted, if they walked past the woman, they'd put their head down. They wouldn't even look at her um, out of fear that there would be inappropriate relationships. And even worse than that, some of them, um, the, the bleeding Pharisees, they, they wouldn't even talk to their wives or their daughters in public out of fear that someone would think something was wrong. Dude, look at Ricardo. I saw him flirting with Holly. Uh-oh. This dude's flirting with his wife. Watch out. Like, that, that's, that's how bad it was. So they didn't talk to women. Now here's Jesus, a single guy at the well with a woman who's known for being promiscuous. This, this doesn't make any sense. This woman not looking for interaction probably has not had a meaningful conversation, probably hasn't had anyone talk to her other than we'll find out the bum she's living with right now who really doesn't love her. We'll get to that in a second. Um, and and, and then there's, there's Jesus here who looks at her and says, hey, can you give me a drink? And this is not in some chauvinistic way like, hey, girl, woman, give me a drink. She's got a bucket. He doesn't have a bucket. 
And he's sitting there, and he says, will, will you give me a drink? So that, just that, that phrase meant a lot. And then we continue here in verse 9. And the Samaritan woman said, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For, for Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Samaritans. Now, when it says no dealings there, it's not that they just didn't have interrea- inter- interaction. The word dealings there could also be translated for utensils, meaning they didn't drink from the same cups. They didn't eat from the same plates. Now, I think the commentaries were right in this in pointing out 1930, 1940, 1920, in our country, 1950, where there was water faucets for, for a particular race and a different water faucet for another particular race. That's what John's communicating here. It is this woman says, how could, you, how could you talk to me? One, I'm a woman, you're a man, I'm a Samaritan, you're a Jewish person, um, and you're going to drink from the same cup with me? This doesn't make any sense. Mind you, this woman's saying, people in my own town want to talk to me. I mean, when I say that she's a reject, I mean, she's a reject of rejects. One, um, Samaritans were just people who were rejects. Jewish people didn't like them. Non-Jewish people didn't like them. They were in their own place. No one liked them. I'm tempted to say, like Tucson, but I'm not. I'm not going to say that. I was tempted, but I'm not going to do that. I've already told you guys. I'm done with that. So this, this, this woman was, was just, a re- she said, wait, you're going to talk to me? You're going you're gonna, to you're gonna communicate to me, and you want to share from the same cup? Jesus does something here that I think is phenomenal. He gets rid of reputation, or he doesn't care about reputation. They're going to find out. The, his boys are going to find out. Other people are going to find out that Jewish, uh, excuse me, Jesus, a single Jewish man, is hanging out with a promiscuous woman. But you know what? Holiness always trumps reputation. Holiness always trumps cultural norms. Holiness and ethics always trumps it. Jesus says, I don't care that you're a woman. I, I, I don't care that you are of diff- different religious background than you think I am. I, I don't care that, that I'm a man and you're a woman. I don't care about the cultural norms because you, you, you need to be connected with. I, I just think at some level, we, I don't want to miss out the importance of this because this woman doesn't have interactions. And so what she doesn't realize here is Jesus is doing what he does for people and has and will continue to do for all centuries is that Jesus leaves the comforts of heaven, not because he needs to be, uh, metaphorically speaking, at the well of our life, but he leaves the comforts of heaven because like this woman who needed to be loved, we needed to be loved. He did not care. He went through whatever he needed to go through, um, not because of cultural norms, but because of his love and his mercy for his people. Amen? That, that, that's what we're starting to pick up here. And the conversation continues to go on. And in verse 10, it says, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was that was saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now they start this dialogue, um, and Jesus is talking to this woman as he does, especially in the Gospel of John. He speaks of something that's physical and tangible to communicate something that's unseen and spiritual. I mean, he does this when he says, I'm the bread. Um, he does this with water. He does this in the chapter before with Nicodemus talking about being born again, where he's not talking about physical birth, but he's talking about spiritual birth. Here, when he says, um, if you knew who was offering you water, if you knew who I was, if you knew the gift of God, the grace of God, you would have asked and I would have given you living water. Throughout the Old Testament, over and over again, um, living water is used as a metaphor, as a picture to communicate salvation and the Holy Spirit. What Jesus is saying to this woman is, what I'm trying to offer to you is the fullness of life. So the fullness of salvation. Um, Not limited to, but including the forgiveness of sin, but also the vitality of life. 
the desire and ability to, to glorify God and pursue him in obedience. Um, he says, I will give you the Holy Spirit who washes and renews and cleanses, um, who gives you a new life. That, that's what Jesus is talking about here when he speaks of living water, but this woman doesn't get it. Um, in verse 11, she, the woman says to him, Sir, um, you have nothing to draw wa- the water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? I think this is some, some sort of sar- sarcasm here at this point. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? Um, he gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And we talked about Jacob. Um, Jacob, both Jews and, and um, Samaritans, looked to Jacob as a patriarch. He was a patriarch. He built the well, and so they've seen this well as something to be significant. And, and she's just speaking in a natural sense. Okay, here's a guy. Um, who's probably 33 years old at this time. So a young guy who's sitting at the well, he doesn't, he, he doesn't have a husband. No, he doesn't. Um, and he doesn't have a wife either. Um, she doesn't have a husband. He's asking for a drink. It's just water. And he's, he's saying, how could you tell me about getting water when you don't even have a bucket? Like, this doesn't make any sense. The dialogue continues to go. And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again, and the water that I give him will become to him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Again, Jesus repeats the, the, the metaphor, the picture of uh, a living water. But before that, he just speaks in very common language. He says, okay, so you come to this well every single day to get water. What I'm trying to offer you is something that you would not have to come to you over and over again. This woman would have got that. Um, this woman knew the shame of getting the bucket thrown over her back and walking daily by herself. Everyone else got to go to the well, and they got to congregate and to talk and to enjoy one another. Not this woman. This woman came by herself daily. In, in the middle of the day, noon, when it's hot, um, we should know exactly what that's like. We'll probably get done with here today at noon. I think it's supposed to be 103 degrees a day. Hot, right? And getting hotter, by the way. Uh, this woman goes to the well. And, and Jesus says, you don't, you don't have to do this anymore. He's not saying, don't ever drink water. He's not saying, if you become a Christian, you don't need water anymore. That's not what he's saying. He's just trying to say, I want to give you something that lasts. And so when Jesus says here, um, the water that I give you will become to him a spring of water welling up to eternal life, he's saying, I'm trying to give you a spring within you, something that, that brings freshness. Um, that, that salvation in itself doesn't only give you eternal life, doesn't only give you forgiveness of sins, but it gives you energy. Just like when we drink cold water in a hot, on a hot day from a fresh spring, it means something. Um, I'm not sure if you've ever drank water from a fresh spring. I have once, and it took me five years to do it. Um, let me explain the story. Um, we, in football, used to go to Camp Tonazona and the mountains of Payson, Tonto Mountains, and um, we'd do camp there. And I've said this over and over again, I'm not an outdoors person. I'd rather be around people than animals any day. Um, I'm more afraid of being, getting bit by a dog than I am being shot by a gun, all right? So there's, there's kind of me. And there was, there was this fresh spring that guys would drink from, and this weirded me out. Um, guys would drink from this, like just put their face in it and drink, and then guys would put their ankle in it to ice their ankle. And I'm like, that doesn't make any sense because his foot was just in there, right? I'm like, oh, Ricardo, you don't understand. Oh, you city boys. No, just, just, just drink it. It'd be good. Five years. I went year after year, no, 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 I saw that. I've seen this dude's feet. I'm not putting my mouth in there, right? So finally, I drank it, and it was the best water ever, um, especially when you're used to this fine tap water that we have down here in the valley, right? It was, it was fresh. 
that, that's the picture that, that, that Jesus says, I want to give, just make your life fresh. I want to replenish you over and over again. This is not just when you become a Christian. This is walking with Jesus daily in your life. Freshness is what he's trying to offer this woman. And the woman says in verse 15, Sir, give me this water so that I may not be thirsty or have to come to draw, draw water. And so now this woman is clearly just being sarcastic to Jesus, which I think is kind of funny. Um, and then Jesus goes and he exposes her. Verse 16, he says, Go, call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. Some, some, some writers say, oh, the, the woman answers that question, I have no husband, in a very sarcastic way. And, and, and I don't think that. Um, here's why. As we, we know, again, culturally at this time, um, for a woman not to have a husband was a big deal. Um, and when Jesus says, go, go, go get your husband, she says, I don't have one. She's being honest. And I don't think she's being sarcastic, but she's telling just a partial part of the truth. And I think there's definitely a lesson here for us that, that um, what we naturally do, um, Christian, non-Christian is, we'll tell the truth, but we're not going to tell the whole truth. There's a confession here, but it's a partial confession. She, she's not going to give this man the whole story. She doesn't understand that, this is, that she's talking to the living God here. She doesn't understand that she's talking to Jesus, the Messiah, and she goes, oh, I just don't have a husband. That's it. Partial confession, which what many of us do. And many of us with our friends, many of the people in our redemption community, we just give just partial. I'm going to give you half of the story. But Jesus continues and says, Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband. For you've had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. So here's Jesus now. Um, seems to be shifting gears from talking about water, talking about salvation, to exposing her sin, um, exposing her darkness. And I think this is, this is something that we, we all key into because this is what Jesus does to our life. Now, let me back up a little bit here and say, um, we could say, um, well, Jesus knew her. Jesus can look into her life. He did. He did. He knew she was lying. Um, I don't know if he used his Jesus powers to do this or if the Holy Spirit told him, hey, tell her more. I have no idea, but that happens. That happens. In, in our lives, sometimes what God does is um, he gives certain people in the body of believers um, a word to tell you that can expose you. This doesn't happen all the time, but it happens. I mean, every time I say this, I get nervous because I'm like, oh, oh I'm getting, getting kind of crazy here, but this, this happens. Um, first time this happened to me was when I was not a Christian yet, and I was dealing with something that, that I only knew. It was something that I wrestled with. It was something that, that, that I wrestled with by myself. I feel like I could tell nobody, and I met a woman who happened to be a Christian who happened to give me the full story. She goes, what's wrong? I told her what I thought was wrong, and it was very vague, and she goes, oh, no, this, this, and this, and this is happening. She exposed me. Um, another time that this happened, it's never happened since, and I wish it would, um, is that I, I was praying, um, not about any particular person, just praying, and I really sensed in this moment that, that um, God was telling me to call a friend of mine who I hadn't talked to in two years, who lived on the other side of the country, who was a female, who probably was attracted to me, and it was just going to be weird for me to call, call her. It's a joke, guys. It's a joke. It's a joke. Gosh, man. Because who's so arrogant? No. I don't know. <laughs> so, so I pick up the phone, and I call this girl, and I believe it wasn't an audible voice. It wasn't do this, do this, do that. And I said, hey, and I said her name, and I said, ah, this is going to sound really weird, but the guy you're living with doesn't love Jesus. You love Jesus. You're not honoring God. God wants you to break up with this guy and move out of your apartment and move somewhere else. 
okay, I'm shaking. Uh, and then she just starts crying, and she says, you know, I was just reading my Bible right now. It was three in the morning on her side of the town, and she says, and uh, I was reading the text that says, if you deny me before men, I will deny you before my father. And I thought, I wonder if this has anything to do with my relationship. Hung up the phone, didn't talk to that girl for years. I got a Facebook message the other day from this particular girl who lives in like Russia or something now. She's married to a godly man, and it was this long message of saying, hey, seven years ago, you called me, you said these things. It was, it was a pivotal moment in my life. I, need, I couldn't tell anybody the truth. I didn't tell my parents the truth, and, and, and God used that. that. That's a good thing. So many of us are afraid of being found out. Um, let me just talk to you first, you Christians, right? Um, we're hi- we naturally hide. What sin, what sin does to us, it makes us, um, metaphorically, like Adam and Eve, we put on fig leaves. And so when we come in the church, we, we come to gather with one another, we sing songs, we laugh at some jokes, we look at the word, we say, I'm going to change. Um, maybe we confess a little bit of sin, but we never really come out and say, here's who I really am. Here's what I'm really struggling with. Um, um, just like I talked about, about the woman who wrote The Hunger Games and how, how evil and, and decay and, and suffering and injustice becomes so normal. Um, this is amazing to me, but sin becomes normal to Christians. And, and not in the sense that we're all sinners and we're going to sin, but, but just sin. Sin that you know is sin. Sin that you go to over and over and over again. It makes no sense to me. I was talking to one of the guys here, and we were talking about just this, and I'm, and, and I'm going to go into tangent for a second, how, how many young single Christians who profess Jesus, who come to church regularly, who, who are in community, see nothing wrong with having sex with someone who's not their spouse. Absolutely blows my mind. Now, do you struggle sexually? Get that. Do you have issues? Get that. But when you say, oh, it's uh, got to forgive me, that's not what Jesus is doing here. And when we hide, this is not just singles, this is married people. We hide things from the people who are closest to us. Um, We give partial truths so that we can get away. We want to save face in public, and that's not good for your spirituality. That's not good for gospel spirituality because grace necessitates sin. If Jesus does not expose our sin, we don't have God. Because he doesn't, he doesn't just expose our sin to embarrass us. Jesus is not embarrassing this woman and say, oh, you've had five husbands and the guy you're living with right now, oh, that's premarital sex. Hey, you're living with this person. That, that's wrong. He doesn't just say morally it's wrong, though it is. He wants to go to the heart of it. And unfortunately, um, depending on how you were raised, there's one of two ways we look at this woman's sin. And I think both don't communicate the weight of our depravity. Both don't communicate the weight of God's solution. On one side, you look at the sin and you say, well, this woman is a promiscuous woman. Um, she's sleeping around. Um, the guy she's living with now is a guy she's probably engaging in sexual relations with, and she needs to stop. Um, she needs to move out, or he needs to move out. She needs to figure something out, and she needs to, she needs to get her act right, and she needs to repent and, because she's breaking God's moral law. Now, she is breaking God's moral law. Um, she, she does need to figure something out in her living arrangements. She can change her living arrangement. She can stop engaging in sexual relations with this man and yet still not have an encounter with Jesus. On the flip side, there's people who say, well, that's what's wrong with you evangelical conservative Christians. You only look at the moral. But you don't see some of the social issues that happen that have maybe contributed to this woman's life. How do you know the five husbands didn't die? 
How do you know one of them didn't walk out on her? How do you know she doesn't have kids? How do you know she doesn't have kids where they got different dads and they have different last names? You don't know this woman's story. And culturally, what we know to be true about this is a woman, this culture and this setting is a woman didn't have the rights that our women have now. A woman just didn't go out and get a job and support herself. That, so maybe she was, she was put in a situation where she had to get married or she had to live with this guy for pr- protection. And so it's not her fault. And so on one side, we just go straight for morals and we say, just change your behavior. On the other side, we say it's not your fault at all. You have no responsibility, and none communicate what the issue is. Jesus says this is not primarily a social issue, though it matters. How you were raised matters. When people say, oh, your upbringing didn't matter, it totally matters. But I think we can't get too much weight to it. And then he's not only saying, yeah, you're wrong. You're morally wrong, though morally she is wrong. Jesus goes to the heart of the issue and says, it's not just you're doing those things. He doesn't say, stop doing this and do this. He goes to the very heart, the sin underneath the sin, which is, it's a worship disorder. He, he continues with the woman. The woman said to, to, said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worship on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. It seems like she's um, trying to now reshift and redirect the conversation, like, okay, whoa, you just exposed me. Let's talk about church. It's not what she's doing. Um, why do people go to temples? Why did they go to the temples in this time? They went to sacrifice because of sin. I think this woman is starting to understand where she's at spiritually. I think she sees now that as Jesus peeks into her life and points out her sin and says, okay, all right, I'm a sinner. I need to go to a temple. The Jews say the temple's over here. That's what we need to sacrifice because that's what God had given us um, um, to talk to the priest so the priest can mediate for us and, and that's where I need to take my sin. But then the Samaritans say we go here and that's where I, I really think there's repentance in this woman. I, th- I think she realizes her issues. I think she realized, yeah, I didn't tell you the full truth, but since you know the truth, yeah, it's even worse than that. And I do take responsibility. Yeah, this is a culture where I do have to uh, put myself in positions in order to survive, and yet I take full responsibility of it. That, that's what repentance is. It's taking full responsibility. No matter, it's not at all disregarding things that have happened to you, sin that has happened to you, abuse that has happened to you, and yet taking responsibility for the part that you play. And he goes, where do I go? Um, this, is, this is clear of people in our day. She's a spiritual woman, but she doesn't know what type of spirituality she has. I come in contact with very few atheists, people who say there's no God. Now, there's atheists, and especially at ASU, there's a, there's a new atheist movement, but there's a lot of people in this room, and there's a lot of people in this city, and there's a lot of people in our country that would say, no, no, there's a God, there's a being, I just don't know anything about him, or even if it's a him. This woman is, she's spiritually confused, she's uh, sexually confused, and she's not stupid, just ignorant. And I think that is a telltale, not just in this culture, but in our culture as well. And so Jesus points her to what true worship is. In verse 21, he says to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You, will, you worship what you do not know. There's the whole point of her not knowing, being ignorant. Not stupid, ignorant. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. 
For the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. When Jesus says salvation is from the Jews, um, Jewish people interpret that to mean that salvation is for the Jews only, but what he means is salvation is through the Jews, meaning God in his redemptive plan to redeem humanity, to redeem all cultures and all peoples and all people's groups, was to work through the Jewish culture. So not to save or to redeem only the Jewish culture, but to work through the Jewish culture that would produce the Messiah, Jesus himself, that will save all types of people. And here's, here's the crux of it. The heart of every single, we can see ourselves in this woman um, through an issue of worship. Jesus says, your worship's wrong. And not just to this woman, to us. Um, worship in itself is when we give our thoughts, our minds, our bodies to anything. Romans 12 says that true worship is laying down our lives and our bodies as sacrifice to God. We were made to worship. We were made to give ourselves, and we will give ourselves to something. The question is, will we give ourselves to God or will we give ourselves to something else? Every single one of us. You may not be a promiscuous person. Maybe you are. Um, you, you may, your, your issue may be anger. Your issue may be that you, you want possessions. Your issues may, may be that you are thriving for a relationship. Whatever it is that gets you up in the morning, what do you think about all the time? What's on your mind? Those are the things that are, that are idols in your life. They're idols. It's sin or depravity, whatever you want to name it. That, that's what he's talking about. And this is what he says where true worship begins. It's not at a place, and it's not in seeking. Verse, 24, or verse 23 at the very bottom says, the, the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. That, that if you have a pen where it says the Father is seeking such people to worship him, that, that's where Jesus begins to communicate. Worship is not about us looking for God. He's not lost. He's not lost. Worship is not us figuring out how do we find God. I'm not trying to discredit your background or how you became a Christian. What I'm saying is worship, first and foremost, is God looking for us. Worship begins not with us seeking for God. What the Bible lets us know about the condition of man, the condition of woman, the condition of people, is that we by nature and by choice are sinners. Romans chapter 3 says that no one is righteous, no not one, no one searches for God. Um, that's not saying that people aren't good. It's not saying that people don't do good things that seem to um, align with God's moral character. It's saying that no one will seek after God by himself or by herself unless God reveals something. We are, we are sinful people um, by nature and choice. My good friend Tyler Johnson says that if, we were, if sin were blue, we'd all be Smurfs. Love that. <laughs> Love that. Smurfs are blue, by the way. Um, and so you see, that's, that's just who we are. And so worship begins with God who's on a rescue mission who seeks us in the same way that he sought after this woman. That worship is that God himself, not that he, we, we're going to find him, but God will find his children. And the way that he finds his children by first and foremost is by revealing to them their main issue of sin. And the sin underneath the sin is that they don't trust God and they don't see that God is enough. And God doesn't stop there. God doesn't just reveal your sin and say, look how wicked and flawed you are. Because he himself finishes the deal by going to the cross for us and dying for our sins. Look how wicked and flawed you are, but yet look how loved and accepted you are fully in Christ Jesus. He looks at this woman and says, trust me, I know you, I know you want to repent, but you don't have to sacrifice for your sin because Jesus will sacrifice for our sin. 
So in the same way now, we can look back to this story and we can see Jesus and we can all, no matter what our background is, Christian, non-Christian, can place ourselves in the position of this woman knowing that God will find us. God does find us. He that begin a good work will finish it into completion. And so the worship is that God is seeking us. God has drawn us. Some of you are young Christians. Some of you have been Christians for years. All you have to do is look back in your life and you can find ways and point out where God has been in your life. You can, oh yeah, I wasn't a Christian at this time, but I can tell God has been my life. God is always involved. He's not going to lose you. He's always going to pursue you. God came because of this. We needed to be loved, and he wanted to love us. Amen? That, that's when Jesus exposes sin, he exposes sin that we may encounter him and that we may know he is who he says he is. I'll close with this. The woman says in verse 20, 25, The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Um, In the Gospel of John, not up until Jesus is on trial, he never reveals to other people. He doesn't reveal to the teachers. He doesn't reveal to the Pharisees. He doesn't even reveal to his disciples that he himself is the Savior. But for whatever reason with this woman, he decides to let her know, all that you're looking for, I am he. 2,000 years later, all that we're looking for in, in relationships, all that we're looking for in money, all that we're looking for in work, all we're looking for in life, Jesus says, I'm the fullness of that. The, I, I offer eternal life. And so the questions I want to leave you with as we pray and, and come to responses, um, what well are you going to over and over and over again? Do you believe that Jesus is the fullness of life? And if so, repent and believe. How you become a Christian is repentance and faith. How you grow as a Christian is repentance and faith. Amen? Father, we, um, Father, I thank you so much for your word. And I thank you, Lord, that as we read your text, Lord, we see this narrative about a woman And Lord, we may not have all the same details or the same circumstances as this woman, but we have the same need. We are in need of something that will satisfy. Lord, even as Christians, Lord, we look to things to add to, um, to supplement to what you've given, Lord, and and it leaves us thirsty. Um, Lord, it it may satisfy for a moment, but it doesn't fully satisfy. And Father, we, we do, we look to relationships, Lord, healthy or unhealthy. Lord, we look to, to work, we look to our spouses, we look to um, substances, Lord, we look to uh, so many different things to, to fill this God-shaped hole that we have in, in our lives. And Father, we thank you and we confess to you, Lord, that, that you, you desire and you are willing to and you are more than able to fill that hole. And so, Lord, I pray for those who are here who profess your name, that you would remind us of what you've given us in the Holy Spirit because of the work of Jesus, that we have this living water, that we have a freshness to our life, that it doesn't have to be stagnant, it doesn't have to be old hat. And so, Lord, that we may uh, repent of our sins, Lord, that gets in the way of, of experiencing the relationship that you've already given us. And I also pray for those who are here, Lord, who, who by their own words would say that they're not Christian, Lord, that they would investigate, that they would question, that they would ask, um, what is and who is this Jesus? And, and, and Lord, I pray that you, by your spirit, would reveal yourself. Um, God, we thank you that we can worship you in spirit and in truth. 
that you revealed yourself and that you are the truth to us and we can come clean before you and before our brothers and sisters that we may confess our sins, receive grace and mercy that you give. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.